Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, somewhere in the southwest desert, wandering with sagebrush around me everywhere in a big storm on the horizon. Uh, In Washington, D.C., about to head off to the far west herself, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University in the Cotswolds in a lovely little uh, spa of some sort being waited on hand and foot. (laughs) Uh, Corey Shockey (laughs) taking full advantage of being in England and somewhere in rural Sussex with sheep and all sorts of other entertainments, Sussex style, um, Ed Luce. (laughs) All, all here and with us. And what we thought we would do today is talk about books. You know, people have brought this up a lot. Like, what are you reading? What should I read? What's of some value? Um, you know, it's summertime. People are, you know, maybe going to a beach or taking some time. Uh, what, you know, what's not of some value? Um, what do you say you're reading, but you're not really reading? Uh, which is, you know, a lot of the books that I read, you know, oh, look, I see a, a Twitter <laughs> review. Mm, that looks fantastic. Anyway, um, let's just start out with the simple question. Uh, Corey, what are you reading now? I uh, finished not long ago reading Sir Lawrence Friedman's book, uh, Future of War, that looks at uh, what people expected the next war to be like and how we got it so wrong. So it's looking at the kind of futures business and the way we try and we try and understand what might be coming in an area of national effort that's enormously consequential. And he's got 1890s newspapers, he's got Walt Whitman reflecting on it. He has a whole chapter on war movies from Vietnam. Uh, and kind of, it's a terrific book and, uh, was really fun to read the ones I am headed to read. As you said, I am on vacation and I brought three great books with me, uh, two of which I was feeling pulled to because of our national moment, uh, James Baldwin's short essays, the fire next time about, uh, racial, Injustice and the Need for Healing in the United States. I'm also going to read George Saunders' wonderful novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, which I did not read when it came out last year. And this feels like a time to have Lincoln's decency and and common sense reconjured for us in literature. And then the third thing I'm reading is not a novel, it's a history. Kathleen Burke's uh, Lion and the Eagle, the Interaction of the British and American Empires from 1783 to 1972. Um, what a good list. And don't hesitate, you know, if you want to give them, you know, four tiaras of optimism or three nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. One of the deep state nerds tweeted out that uh, one of the last episodes was NerdCon 2. And I think that needs to be our, we need to have NerdCon readings or levels (laughs) for things we read. Um, Okay, good. Well, we do. I totally agree with you. Rosa, what, what, I know you're supposed to be writing a book. Um, and I always find when I'm writing a book that reading other people's books really is aggravating. Um, I know, because you think, how did that goddamn person finish this goddamn book when I can't finish my goddamn book? Exactly. You, you hate them. You really hate them. 
they're it's like show offs, no matter yeah. how many hundreds of years they've been dead. But what are you what what are you reading? <laughs> well, I'm 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 actually reading I am reading some things that relate to the book I'm writing. The book I'm writing is about policing. Um, so I've been uh, reading two books by uh, colleagues and former colleagues of mine, one of which is uh, James Foreman Jr.'s book, won the Pulitzer Prize, Locking Up Our Own, um, which is uh, a, a sort of a, a history um, focusing on Washington, D.C., of uh, policing and attitudes towards criminal justice and changing criminal justice legislation, focusing on changing attitudes within the African-American community. Um, and it's really a fascinating look at the ways in which uh, different groups within DC's African-American community, um, and sometimes the same group, had very ambivalent and sometimes contradictory attitudes towards what they were looking for in terms of policing and criminal justice. Uh, um, I'm also reading Paul Butler, my colleague, Georgetown colleague, Paul Butler's book, Chokehold, um, which is about race and policing in particular, the impact of current criminal justice and policing practices on African-American men. And both of these books are really, really smart, uh, well-written, thoughtful, uh, and I think for a lot of people will be really eye-opening um, and they're, they're very nuanced. Uh, they're, they're very good at unsparingly examining the, the contradictions uh, in our own attitudes often towards policing. Um, so those are two books that I'm actually pretending are, are research. Um, but as I said last time, I mostly read novels and here are a couple of good ones. Uh, uh, Norwegian by Night and American by Day by Derek Miller. Um, American by Day is sort of the sort of quasi sequel to Norwegian, Norwegian by Night, in which a Norwegian police detective ends up uh, in upstate New York um, and ends up getting sucked. These are actually, strangely enough, related to my other two, related to issues of policing and race. Ends up getting kind of pulled in while while looking for her brother. Uh, to the controversy around the police shooting of a young African-American boy um, in this small upstate New York town. But it's really well written. Uh, they're funny, they're smart, and I really recommend them to anybody looking for a good novel. And finally, can I cheat and give one foreign policy book that nobody can actually read because it's not out yet, but it will be soon? Um, this is yes, a do. book. Yes, do. Yeah, so this is a book um, that I read because I was asked to read it and give give it a blurb by friend of the deep state, uh, Steve Walt, um, who I hope we can get Steve on deep state radio one of these days, maybe to talk about the book when it comes out. But he has a book that is coming out, um, I think fairly soon, uh, called The Hell of Good Intentions. Um, and it is a book about the American foreign policy establishment. Um, let me see if I can figure out um, what, its, uh, what its subtitle is. Oh, here we go. Uh, the Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It's coming out in October. Um, and essentially, Steve, who uh, those of our listeners who have been readers of Steve's column in Foreign Policy um, will know, you know, most foreign policy books could double as sleep aids, um, unfortunately. Uh, Steve is an exception. Steve's prose tends to wake you up a little bit and shake you up a little bit uh, rather than actually make you start snoozing. Um, and, and his argument essentially has been that both on the Republican and on the Democratic side of the aisle, that so-called foreign policy elites uh, have essentially colluded, colluded in the same shared delusions about American exceptionalism uh, to our detriment as a nation, and indeed domestically opening up the space for Trump with his critique of elites uh, to to get some real traction. Uh, it's a smart and provocative book, uh, and he goes right after uh, our very own pals and the milieu in which in Washington we we tend to operate. Uh, and I think that whether whether you view yourself, and and if you do, I pity you as part of the foreign policy elite. Or, or not, are simply interested in watching this strange tribe's shenanigans, uh, uh, you'll really enjoy Steve's book. 
Can wow. I just say how delicious it is to have a Harvard professor railing against the establishment <laughs> and all you Someone's insiders got it, in the country? <laughs> well, first of all, is it delicious or is it ludicrous? <laughs> As a connoisseur of human folly, David, I'm surprised yeah. to hear you um, sound, st sound uh, so dour about the prospect. I'm not dour about the prospect. I just think it's kind of, you know, I mean, to suggest somehow that the Harvard Kennedy School is not part of the, you know, establishment is pretty that's silly. That's not fair, but that's that's the too easy a way to dismiss the arguments by just saying, well, you I'm know, he's at Harvard, he must, you know. <laughs> I mean, of course he is part of the foreign policy elite, but. I'm, I'm not dismissing the, I'm not, I was, I was commenting on what Corey said, just in a kind of jovial way. I was not dismissing it. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think taking shots these at Harvard the people are very sensitive about things like this, you know. No, I know. And 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 if you end up hiring everybody from the Trump administration, I think you're going to get more sensitive. Um, oh, oh, Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> that is what is officially known as a cheap shot, David. Well, sorry, sorry. I would never want to, right? But below the waterline. <laughs> I never would ever dream of doing that. And I think the book sounds great. Frankly, it's a topic that I've thought about writing stuff myself. Um, and we should have Steve Walt on the show. You know, I once got into a very big dust up with Steve Walt because I didn't much like his his book um, on the Jewish lobby. Um, and uh, I, I, in fact, I noticed in, 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 in some writers in the past week, as I've been a little tough on Israel, say, well, look how far Rothkopf's come around because he slandered Steve Walt um, for you know the book on the Jewish lobby by saying they were playing to anti-Semitic impulses. Um, but actually, I don't think I've come very far at all because I still think they were. But he can come on the show. In Steve's defense, I do not believe he referred to the Jewish lobby. I think he talked about the Israel lobby. Yeah, no, I that's absolutely right. In Steve's defense, um, but you know, we, we can. I'm, look, I'd love to have him on, and we can talk about it. And I should point out that. The, the, this dust up with Steve occurred before I took over foreign policy, and he rem I kept him on as one of the columnists there for the whole time I was there for precisely the reason that he's really smart and he's a really good writer and he says a lot of really smart things. And 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 I think one of the things that makes both his columns generally worth reading and this book worth reading when it comes out is that he's he is willing to be provocative and to risk making people mad. And and I think David. One of the things that both of us have lamented in the past many, many times in the world of foreign policy writing, since it's made up almost entirely of people who are either currently in government service or people who long to be in government service or people who long to get money for their think tanks from the government, uh, it's very, very hard to get people to write anything interesting. Everyone is too scared. And, and Steve has always been willing to... Uh, go out on a limb, rightly or wrongly, and, and say things that other people won't say. And that's actually, I think, a really a really important and necessary quality. I, I absolutely agree with you. And just, you know, you've really hit a raw nerve, not a raw nerve, but a exposed, I don't know, some kind of a nerve. Because, you know, that was when I was running foreign policy, that was one of the things that struck me is that the model of foreign policy publications was so much Let's get, you know, somebody who's in office or who wants to be in office or was recently in office to go and write some piece. And they tend or they, they tend to write very bland things that protect their future equities. And it's really boring and, and they don't add anything new to it. And, you know, that's true also of a lot of academics who are looking for tenure, but they're not looking to rock the boat too much because they want to keep their options open. And so finding people who are smart and who speak their minds and who do so well uh, and write well and do so strongly is very, very hard. It usually involves hiring people who are professional writers first and other things second. Uh, but Steve Walt is definitely in that category. I totally agree. And I look forward to reading the book. Ed. I am here. I'm, I'm busy taking notes as to what I should be reading for the rest of the summer. Um, but if you're after what I've been um, reading, it's it's uh, slightly less um, thematic than, than, than Corey and Rose's choices. I've actually been delving into books that uh, have been around for a long time um, that um, I feel are relevant for today. Um, the first you will have all read many years ago and was written more than 60 years ago. I never actually read iRobot by um, Asimov until 
uh, a couple of weeks ago and um, found it extraordinarily prescient. It was written before I was born, but the debates and the ethical um, questions that he poses about what uh, automation and robots, artificial intelligence, although that's not a term he uses, um, uh, does to society um, are entirely relevant, entirely the frame that we're looking through this today and should be. So, I mean, it's for, for the few people who, like me, had, haven't read it, I'd, I'd strongly recommend that. Likewise... I've never read it. Oh, I, I really... I mean, it's, okay. it's short. It can, be, it can be done in, you know, a, a, a Cotswoldian pedicure. You can you can finish it. I do they, are there such a thing as a Cotswoldian pedicure? That's a measure there is of now. time. It is. It's a it's a measure of time. How long is that, Corey? <laughs> About twenty five thousand words. <laughs> um, a, a slightly longer one. Um, uh, I mean, a much longer book, um, and equally um, um, relevant for today, though not written. Um, recently uh, um, that I think you all will have read and that I'm surprised I haven't read until now, but glad I didn't read until now is uh, Hitler's Willing Executioners, uh, the, the Goldhagen uh, book, which which came out in 96. And as you know, caused you know an extraordinary stir in Germany and beyond, but particularly in Germany, because it, it pretty much banged to rights, demonstrated that um, the the idea that the people didn't know this was happening was wrong, that they were in fact actively on a mass social scale conniving with and egging on um, the Holocaust. And the reason why, you know, I, I, I picked it up now is, I guess, obvious. It, it's the susceptibility of people to uh, who at individual level, you know, might consider themselves to be decent and moral and good members of their family and community and so forth can 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 be persuaded over sustained periods of time to think the most vile, the most bestial thoughts about other people um, is, I think, a relevant thing to be delving into now. It is, it is a brilliant book, um, mm. a, a very, very sobering one. I've just finished reading a um, book by my former colleague. Um, this is more contemporary. It came out a couple of years ago called The Invention of Russia. Uh, Arkady Ostrovsky, and he's uh, he's now at the Economist, but he he's a Muscovite, by, uh, born and bred, um, then moved to the Financial Times, and then became the Economist's Moscow bureau chief. But it's a brilliant account of the evolution of the Russian media since the Soviet Union dissolved, up to uh, the Putin era, up to almost today, and how media has been used to recreate an idea of nationhood. And it is, again, quite sort of analogously chilling um, to see the ease with which minds can be manipulated, that the idea of Russia, you know, can go from this, um, uh, from one thing, a Soviet ideological conception, to quite another, a sort of borderline Eurasian Bananite view of its civilizational Christian role um, and and Ostrovsky does it really brilliantly. It's a book I'd I'd strongly recommend. And I'm about to read, very belatedly, but this is the most recent, most contemporary book. Our our, our colleague uh, David Sanger's um, uh, book, The Perfect Weapon, and I, I have no doubt it is, by all accounts, including yours and the reviews that I've read, that it is the best book around on cybersecurity. So I'm looking forward to reading it. I really hate to hear that, but no, no. I, <laughs> oh, it is terrific. It no, is it is terrific. terrific. It is terrific, and I have even said as much myself. I'm not going to dwell too much. David, you've got to talk about your books. Well, I, um, I, yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, the, I, you know, I've been reading a bunch of stuff during the course of the summer. Some of it just completely summer uh, fluff. You know, for example, I read the uh, a, a sort of story of the of Leonard Bernstein in honor of his 100th anniversary that was written by his daughter Jamie Bernstein which is called Famous Father Daughter and it's just sort of about growing up with Leonard Bernstein and I thought it was great and it was just it's a big diversion and I have this weakness from the many years that I spent doing sort of show business instead of foreign policy and Washington stuff that I find a lot of relaxation in books like that I also as a general rule, find that the books I read to escape Washington are sort of, you know, br you know, brief history of time, you know, uh, chaos, 
books on infinity, <laughs> books on, I, I like reading. Entropy. Yeah, I, but yeah, entropy. No, I like reading <laughs> on, on science and math. You know, I just find that interesting. How interesting. And, that I, and that's I, what and, relaxes you. It, well, it's just because at no point do I ever encounter a sentence which makes me think, damn, I wish I had written that. Damn, I wish I had written a column or a book about that. Or damn, that person is much more successful than me. And I, I hate it. You know, <laughs> I, I just don't. You know, most Mostly I read them and I go, if only I understood this, I'm sure it would be very interesting to me. Um, As somebody said, I'm sure one of you will know, it's not enough that I, I succeed, others must right. fail. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Can but, I add one book that I forgot that's well, really, let me really wonderful? Okay, oh, I'm sorry, on. I thought you were. No, I was going to give you a couple books. Um, hey, go on. <laughs> so I just reread Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. And Nick Bostrom is an Oxford philosopher who's looking at the philosophical implications of AI, um, and which has led me now to just order, and I've just got now, a book called Life 3.0, uh, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, um, which uh, allegedly is Elon Musk's favorite book on the subject. Um, but I'm going to read it anyway, despite the fact that he is apparently one of the world's great dickheads. Um, most most recently, I have uh, uh, read two books, though, that I that I recommend. One, I just I can't read every darn Trump book that that comes along. Um, but but I, I want to read some of them. And and Michael Isakoff and David Korn's book, Russian Roulette, was really good. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, it really covers a lot. David has been ahead of the curve on, on, on covering a lot of this Russia stuff. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of specifics in it, just like David Sanger's book does, by the way, on the cyber side. It's Sang Sanger's book, you know, is, is sort of, if you read it, you'll be ahead of where most of the news is because most people haven't sort of caught up to his reporting on it. But Russian Roulette is, is excellent. And, and the one you know, sort of great book of the summer that I just, whatever you do, go out, buy this book, read this book. I, I just think it, it was a very important book, uh, was uh, Michiko Kakutani's book, The Death of Truth, Notes mm. on Falsehood in the Age of Trump. Uh, uh -huh. um, what is that? What does that noise mean? Was that a supportive? It was a supportive. Yes, mm. from both mm -hmm. of us. Okay. Yes, and I me, want to read it me. too. It was affirming. Okay, thank you. I'm, you know, insecure. And but because it could have been a groan of like, oh boy. <laughs> no, no, no. It sounds wonderful. And I think it, she's incredibly thoughtful and profound. I've always loved her book reviews and I can't wait to read her book. Well, this book is thoughtful and it's profound and it's beautifully written and it's on an urgent subject. Um, and if you think the death of truth is a little sort of meta or you know semi-philosophical for your taste. Set that aside. Read the book. It's it's one of the it's one of the two great crises of our time. I think uh, in politically, the other being the rise of of ethno nationalism, uh, and the two go hand in hand. So I I, I couldn't recommend it more. Uh, Corey, are there any books that you? Um, that you don't recommend, that you think really stink or are terribly overrated? <laughs> oh, yes, a whole bunch of them. When I was teaching at West Point, I used to have a long-running joke with, uh, with the cadets that I was teaching that there are two categories of books. One, books you should have on your shelf so that people think you're an intellectual. And the second category of book, which needs to be direct crosswalks to the first, are the books you should actually read to become an intellectual, because many of the ones you should have on your shelf are stuffy, overrated, um, and there are name, better ways to learn those same name, lessons. Name names. But, I would like but, to know, seriously, we could add, do a big service here. Just to <laughs> pick that up. Let's do a service for all the nerds out there. What should be on their bookshelf? What should be the books that they ought to have there so that they look smart and then the ones they ought to read? What is the difference? Give us a couple examples. Uh, well, let's see. Um, uh, let me start with Machiavelli you should have on your shelf. 
And you should read Jane Austen if you want to understand ruthlessness, how much social position constrains different actors, and how to play a weak hand well. I got to tell you, I'm literally standing here. It's pouring rain out here, by the way. But I am standing here in, 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 in Santa Fe, New Mexico, giving you a standing ovation. <laughs> That's the best juxtaposition on that subject that I've ever heard. You're absolutely right. I curtsy my thanks to you, David. Um, so, so, yeah, one of my former students sent me the list not long ago um, of, of everything that, you know, they the self-important or the overrated and how it gets translated into something you should actually want to read that will grip you and give you the lesson that you're supposed to take from ostensible canonical books. Um, can I just add one book? I One great book that I just read a couple of weeks ago and somehow passed over, which is Andrew Sean Greer's novel, Less. I have not enjoyed Oh yeah, you mentioned a, that last time. Fun read. It's like Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. It's it's an a unlikable narrator who who you get tugged along by their journey and end up pulling for them. And it's a really beautiful novel about about aging and perspective and love. Um, okay, let's go back to this other thing as advice for nerds, Rosa. Wh what books should they have on their shelf and, and not, you know, that they needn't read versus the books they should be actually reading? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, I think I'm going to plead the fifth on this one because if I told you <laughs> the percentage of the books on my own bookcase that, that I've either never even attempted to read or dipped into, found boring and put down again, um, I would be forever, I would be drummed out of the halls of academe. Wow. Well, you'll, you'll, when you get drummed out, you can meet me there. <laughs> um, because I think that's sort of where I belong and all of that. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read an issue of Foreign Affairs from cover to cover? Never. I, in fact, I'm not entirely convinced I've ever read a single article in Foreign Affairs from, from beginning to end. That is why you are on <laughs> this podcast. Because <laughs> they're so goddamn boring. <laughs> they are so fucking boring. They consist yeah, yeah. of people, you, people where you already know what they're going to say, saying what you already know that they're going to say at tedious length. Yeah, right, absolutely. Fact, Bang on. If you know anything <laughs> about foreign policy, which is small f, small p, and you read the table of contents of foreign affairs. You're done. You know what it You're says. Done. You can stop there. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. I like foreign affairs, my <laughs> friends. <laughs> but you're kind. I learn from foreign are. affairs. You're kinder um, and more humble. You're kinder <laughs> and open-minded and just less cynical. And you're from the West Coast and, and, you know, and Cotswolds. Yeah. What do you expect? Yeah. She's in the Cotswolds. <laughs> Somebody's massaging her feet at the moment. Anything is fine. <laughs> the only thing I will say, the only thing that is worse, that is far, far, far worse than foreign affairs is is uh, legal scholarship and in, in law reviews, which are a unique form of, of horror uh, created by the sort of synergies between the fact that these are student edited uh, journals and students need to be on law reviews because it looks good on their resume. Um, but there's really not enough for them to do, so then they have to dedicate themselves to creating needless work, um, uh, you know, by adding unnecessary footnotes and so forth. Um, so law reviews have become these these sort of terrible graveyards of uh, ideas, um, with very very rare exceptions. And someone did a study, uh, you know, five or ten years back on the average number of citations of a law review article. And it was, you know, like zero. Um, so it's, uh, there are things that are worse than affairs. Yeah, and in fact, what I'd like you to do is I'd like each of you to stop right now and think of the books you've read in the past couple of years and think of a book that was complete rubbish that you would like to call out for being a rubbish, but it was written by a friend of yours, so you can't. 
There. Oh. Now that we're done with that side. <laughs> I do think the most painful book review I ever wrote was uh, a friend and colleague wrote a genuinely terrible book, and other friends who um, who are are in the publishing business uh, um, trapped me into reviewing it, and wow did that hurt um it was delicate to do to find good things to say about a genuinely bad book what was his yeah. first name just just give us his first name you don't <laughs> yeah. have to go further than that no, no. <laughs> or even a middle with. initial tell us what his name rhymes with <laughs> <laughs> well, better yet, tell Ed his first name and then tell me his last name <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will, we will not okay this could be really fun because then <laughs> i can have you both thinking it's the other by the names i give yeah well that's 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 true ed a, a book of complete rubbish from the past few years well anything by parag khana i think oh probably... that's so mean <laughs> and yet so true um, um uh, but but um, I, I share regret saying that. That's a, it is a bit mean, um, but it is true. Because um, he means well, and he's he means, very earnest, and he full, of, well. full of sincere uh, enthusiasm. Do you know, uh, Parag Khanna, he once worked for me when he was like oh. on, his, on his way up, and he was, he was an aspiring savant, and now he's a full-fledged savant of some sort. There are different kinds of savants, and I won't tell you which kind he is. Um, um, we can fill in that blank. I mean, to to follow Corey's um, inspiring example of having Machiavelli and Jane Austen on her shelf, I, I would I would have the tale of the emperor with with no clothes because it, uh, this is on the the dark side of your question. There are a lot of there are a lot of emperors there who've learned the lingo, who have sort of catchy, buzzy um, intellectual um, thought leadership inverted commas concepts that, you know, might at a stretch make a foreign affairs article, but then become books. And I'm not going to mention any more names because, you know, the, 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 there are too many of those. In terms of good stuff, there is a lot of good stuff. Mostly it's, you I know. I mean, do you mean, do you mean like Francis Fukuyama by any chance? Uh, no, I, 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 I mean, it, perhaps that shouldn't, that particular article shouldn't have been turned into a book, but I, I do rate um, Fukuyama quite highly. And I am looking forward to the book he'll be bringing out in um, in September on our current political um, malaise, because I think he's, you know, he he's follows the Keynesian dictum of when the facts change, you change your mind, and he's done so, you know, very painstakingly. And he is he is a he he is a scholar. Um, Corey, totally, Corey, totally, short knows, totally true. Knows by right. the way, I was I totally agree with you. I just I, I meant that particular book and that particular article. Um, right. Right. Um, but um, uh, The Emperor with No Clothes is, is just, a, it's just a great guide to life. Yeah, especially these days. Um, uh, Rosa, you, you, you've gone after legal scholarship. What kind of books, you read a lot of novels, what kind of books would the aspiring foreign policy or uh, public policy, you know, nerd or know-it-all, what 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 could they read that is that is nonfiction that would be helpful? Oh gosh, that's a great question. You know, I I feel like I mostly read fiction partly because I'm I'm shallow and have a short attention span and need a narrative to keep me going, but but partly because I I I have developed the completely self serving belief that you can learn much more from fiction often, at least if you're shallow and have a short attention span. Um, so I feel like everything I know about more or less anything comes from fiction. Um, I, I, at other points in my life, have been a big reader of historical fiction, which is uh, much less painful than reading actual history. Um, um, so I, and, and it, it, in all seriousness, when I'm going to a part of the world that I've never been to, or for one reason or another, have to learn about an issue that I don't know much about, um, while I do make uh, very strategic forays into nonfiction uh, for specific purposes, you know, if I need to learn about topic X or place X, um, I also tend to try to see if there's any fiction 
on that topic, whatever it is, you know, whether it's that you're interested in Afghanistan or you're or you're interested in policing in the United States, whatever it is, uh, that that it's often fiction that that does a better job at capturing complexity and contradiction. Um, so I don't know that I have specific recommendations about foreign policy in general, um, but but I certainly um, I certainly think that you can learn quite a lot from fiction. And, and here's another another great book I I read recently. Um, on the general theme of uh, uh, if we were going to award both tiaras of optimism and crowns of entropy to to books, I would actually rate it highly for both. Was Sebastian Barry's uh, recent novel *Days Without End*, which uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant novel. I agree. Young man um, who emigrates to the United States from Ireland um, during the famine and ends up uh, joining the U.S. Army. Uh, during the the era of westward expansion through to the the civil war and it's it's a strange and disturbing and wonderful book and it it both uh you know highlights just the the unbelievable daily casual brutality of the westward expansion uh uh in the US and and uh, warfare during that period and and relations with the Native Americans, which consisted mainly of uh, slaughter. Um, but it's also uh, a strangely optimistic book at the same time. It involves gender bending soldiers and and surprising surprising new families being created. and and it was a one of those wonderful books that that I think manages at the, one and the same time to sort of capture the the incredible awfulness of, of of humans in general, but also the the all of the things that make us still worth sort of kind of rooting for at the end of the day. Corey, you have any books in this category? Uh, in the category of things everyone should read to understand foreign policy. Well, the nonfiction, you know, the the kind of books that offer a lesson without, like you know, the 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 Jane Austen example was a good one. But I was just wondering if you I mean, you know, there have been a bunch of books recently, you know, like Peter Singer has written some novels or has written mm-hmm. one. He's got another one. And coming. Jeffrey Lewis has one just out about nuclear war That's with right. North was, Koreans that just uh, got a flashy interview. Right. Yeah, I, I was going to bring that up. And in fact, in fact, I was thinking of having both of them come join us at some point. And talk that about sounds this. like great fun. And I love Ghost Fleet, August Cole and Peter Singer's novel. It did more to shake the complacency in particular of the American Navy. Um, and the lesson I took away from it, I loved so much the reminder that Americans are natural insurgents. We've been on the counterinsurgency side of the line for the last 17 or 18 years. And so it was a nice reminder that we're actually really good at fighting insurgencies ourselves. That's our, that may be our natural MO. You, you were um, the Taliban of the late 18th century. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we had the watches, but you had the time. Oh, oh, nice. It's very nice. You know, a bigger lesson in all of this, I, th- I mean, just from my point of view, which is if you really want to understand what this stuff is, don't be unidimensional. Read economics. Read science, yeah. read history. By all means, read a lot of history. You know, I used to, you know, I remember working with Kissinger and he would occasionally make these kind of self-deprecating remarks. Oh, I don't know anything about economics and so on and so forth. Ed seen Henry more recently and probably could do a better remark. But, but you know, there's, there's all these people who think, well, I'm a national security specialist, but I don't know anything about economics or markets or and and how do you, how do you do that? How how can you possibly do foreign policy without knowing you know those other disciplines? I ardently support that. The the wider and more diverse your reading is, not only the more interesting a person you're going to be, but the different perspectives. Emily Dickinson said, "Tell the truth, but tell it slant." And one of the things that reading widely helps you do is look at the world from different slant perspectives. And Rose's really good point about the fact that she reads fiction to understand the real world is, I think, a beautiful example of that. There's the example of 
Steve Jobs learning calligraphy, and it turns out that revolutionizes how we space fonts on computers. You never know where information is going to be um, providential, and it spurs our creativity, which is why I get away with spending so much time goofing off and it counting as basic research. Well, I've actually just finished, you know, I'm working on a book, but I've just finished Sorry, I stepped on your laugh line there. I shouldn't have done that. But I just, I, I've, 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 I, I just, you know, I'm working on this book project. But I just finished a book proposal that I'd been thinking about doing for the past couple of years called "Everything I Know About Washington I Learned in Show Business." And essentially, the, you know, the punchline is I spent the first 10, 12 years of my life being a theater director and doing television shows and writing screenplays and all that kind of stuff. And all that stuff turned out to be incredibly useful when I went into doing foreign policy in Washington stuff. And, and you know, there, there, there are these, there are lessons everywhere. Um, well, one of my favorite um, British politicians of a previous generation was Dennis Healy, um, who uh, was, was a labor foreign and defense secretary in the 60s, 70s. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he wrote one of the best political memoirs, um, that I've ever read called the time of my life. And it's, uh, he talks about two kinds of politicians. There's the politician with, uh, hinterland, the politician who has many other interests, who's had other careers, who's got other strings to their bow. And there's a politician without, um, and he makes a very persuasive case uh, that the ones with hinterland are the ones who understand how politics works and use it best. Mm. Yeah, now just to pick up on this theme a little bit uh, and, and tease it out a bit, you know, I was thinking, you know, a book I read, a, I don't know, two months ago, which I thought was really, or a month ago, um, which I thought was, I guess it only came out a couple weeks ago, so I must, my everything's blurring together in my head. But I, I, I read it, I think, right around the time it came out was a book called Give People Money by Annie Lowry about universal basic yeah. income. And mm -hmm. I think universal mm -hmm. basic income as an issue is going to be bigger and bigger and bigger as an issue. I think the social contract, which essentially was invented uh, as we know it now in the 1930s, is up for a big refresh. And so discussions by her, just like you know Andy McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson from MIT, uh, who've written some great books on, on 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 where this is all going, are extremely useful. And her book, this book, give people money, was I thought was great. Ed, you 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 know you actually worked for the Financial Times. Give us a couple economics books you think might be worth reading. Um, that's uh, that's a good question. I'll have to think about that for a moment. I'll just pick up on the Annie Lowry one, which is on my on my list and the whole sort of debate about universal basic income. Um, uh, it, I think it's extremely good to debate it because we test the sort of uh, the basic concepts that are being challenged, you know, by technology and, and, and other forces. Um, I have to say, though, I'm very skeptical that UBI is the answer to this. And I think one of the reasons for that, that economists particularly who've been pushing UBI don't get is that people want to work not just for income, um, but because they want to be uh, useful, they want to belong, they want to be needed, um, and because they they like the status that comes with being whatever it is they are, whether they're electrician or a teacher or something more exalted. Um, and having a, a universal basic income, I think, misses the psychological need to work and to have a role in society. And I also think, you know, well, it's, well, it's but, really bad fiscal policy. It's really bad fiscal policy. It well, costs but, a lot and you've got to get rid of everything else to pay for it. Well, let's, let's examine both of those for a second. One is, you know, I think that since the industrial revolution or since actually in all prior economic symptoms, systems, it was in the interest of the elites to make people believe that their value in life came from their work. And, you know, it is possible that you could get value in your life from something other than work, including raising your family, writing a poem, taking a walk across a field, uh, or giving to society, uh, you know, using, you know, and, and, and so forth. And secondly, 
having universal basic income or a universal minimum income doesn't preclude people from working. It merely says that the safety net takes a different form as we move into an era in which jobs are going to be uh, lost or changed so rapidly that the alternative is massive social disruption uh, and much, much worse. And finally, from a fiscal perspective, um, there are approaches to this, for example, universal minimum income as opposed to universal basic income, um, which are much less costly. So all of so, those- I mean, I, I believe that, uh, I mean, I, I might be, you know, 10% out of my numbers here, but to have $12,000 uh, universal minimal or basic income for every American costs basically about $4 trillion. Which is which is more than the budget right now, the total federal budget. You've got to get rid of everything in order to get that minimal, and that's yeah. already below the poverty line. So I'm far more attracted. I think everything you said about the changing nature of work is absolutely correct, and the assumptions that your worth as a human being, you know, come are derived from your work are, are very much. Uh, progeny of the Industrial Revolution. I agree with you on that point, but guaranteed employment is a far better answer to that. There are still a trillion things we need people to be doing that no that no AI is going to conceivably be doing, such as looking after other people, um, which ought to be dignified. It ought to be remunerated. It ought to, uh, and it is desperately needed. Um, I, I think guaranteed uh, guaranteed employment for people who want work but can't find work is a far better answer. But it, it's a I totally agree with you. This is a debate we ought to be having a lot more often. Right, and we should re revisit it here. I think Corey has had to go have like uh, a seaweed wrap or something like this in, in, in her spa in the Cotswolds or whatever they would have instead of seaweed <laughs> in the Cotswolds. Cheese, um, probably. <laughs> cheese, tea bags, something like that. Um, Rosa, pick one book that has, you know, in, in this general area or, uh, or, or offer a comment on all of this regarding how do you broaden into other disciplines? Uh, well, I think you just have to be unafraid to dive in. I, I think that one of the you know, real problems that we face is, is that people think, oh, if I'm not an expert, I can't possibly learn anything or have anything to say. Uh, I, I think that that's a problem that's exacerbated by trends in academia, which have been for some time now towards greater and greater specialization and, and as part of that sort of greater and greater uh, deployment of jargon that is intelligible only to other specialists. Um, um, so I don't have a particular I don't have a particular book. I'm I'm a I'm a a little bit of a uh, autodidact as well, and will just dive in at more or less at random to to anything, which means I don't necessarily understand all of it, but that's okay. Um, usually, you understand enough for it to be interesting and fun. So I you know I I think I don't I don't have anything super super useful to say on this point other than. Just dive in. Just because you start a book doesn't mean you have to finish it. Just because you start a book doesn't mean you have to read every word as opposed to skim. Uh, just because you're interested in a subject doesn't mean you have to read whatever the the book everybody is talking about happens to be as opposed to, you know, finding a novel that touches on the subject or whatever works for you. But 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 be omnivorous and read widely. Uh, and don't be ashamed to admit that you like uh, uh, whatever embarrassing genre you happen to enjoy, uh, and it's it's all good. That is a great way to end this discussion. That is the formula for successful nerdiness. It's also <laughs> the formula for success of the people I know who are the most successful people intellectually. They read the most, but they also read the most diversely, um, and, uh, they, you know, they, uh, they try to, you know, swim in lots of different ponds and lakes. They really try to get into, um, uh, you know, as many different areas of thought as possible. They avoid echo chambers, uh, and they avoid being bogged down in the topic of the moment. Uh, and they have come to realize that if you really want to get into a topic, it takes more than... 280 characters or a thousand words or a magazine length piece, it actually very often takes a book. 
Uh, and hopefully this discussion will give you some inspiration on how to take a book. I wish it could have been a little more candid, you know, because, you know, some of us knew some things that we thought were complete shit, but we just didn't want to say it. Um, and Ed, Ed, Ed knows exactly who I'm talking about um, because we swapped text emails with each other. Oh, wait, that's not fair. But if anybody out there is listening and they want to tweet out what full of shit author or books have come out recently that we were referring to uh, and you get it right, we will send you a mug. Um, we will send you a copy of that worthless book. <laughs> well, we will. They, you may already have that worthless book or books. There are more than one. But we'll send you a mug, provided you don't tell anyone that that's how you got the mug. Um, oh, guys, wait. I just wanted to share something completely random before before we go. And I'm I'm saying this because as I sit here, I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at the front page of the Washington Post on my computer, and it's got a picture of uh, that great American statesman John Bolton. And I want you to know that I saw him walking out of the King Street Metro station. I was driving my daughter home and he walked past us scowling, uh, scowling ferociously. And I said to my daughter, that's so weird. That guy looks like John Bolton. And she said, John Bolton, who's John Bolton? And I said, Google him. And so she Googled him and she said, I think that is John Bolton. And we looked more closely and it was John Bolton in my very own neighborhood. So I just wanted to share that with you before we go. And he took the Metro? And he took the metro and he looked very discontented, as, as well he might. Well, maybe he was going to visit one of the other more famous residents of Alexandria. Like Paul Manafort. That was the one I was thinking of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, was, he was walking the, the wrong way to get to the courthouse, however. Oh, well, it's, that's too bad. Um, in any event, well, thanks for that vignette um, from our shared hometown. That's what it's like to be inside the beltway. You get it's, to see John, Men, Men, John Bolton scowling as he gets off the Metro. Yeah. And every time you see sheets hanging out of the window of the court, uh, out of the jail, you think there goes that Paul Manafort. You can always tell because <laughs> every time you see an ostrich coat hanging out the window of the, exactly. It's ostrich, ostrich skin sheets or something like that. Um, in any event, Thank you, uh, Corey, wherever you are, whatever treatment you're receiving. Um, thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, nerds everywhere. Enjoy your week. Enjoy uh, these great summer days. And we'll be back next week for more fun and games here on Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.